Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, proud fundraiser from my time working for Alzheimer's Research UK, now the charities lead at London Marathon Events where I get to work with thousands of brilliant and amazing charities, father of three football-obsessed children and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do More Good Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Okay, here we are, James, episode number 86 of the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing? Kenneth, I'm very well, thank you. Good to see your little face on my screen again. And uh, we're having a good week, aren't we? We feel like kids in the sweet shop this week. We do, we do. You should probably give some context to that, isn't it? We've been, we've become social media experts this I week, think, haven't we? I think, I think we can give ourselves that title. Absolutely. So Claire, who usually handles our social media with a plum, let's say, has gone on holiday and she's basically just given us the keys to the Twitter, the Instagram feed. You've been all over the TikToks. It's been fun. <laughs> it has, yeah. We I've seemed to have got into a bit of a theme for every episode that that we put out now is that my my six thirty a.m. dog walk. I started doing what I'm calling dog walk diaries. You know, recording a quick intro into the episode, and yeah, managed to to nail this one in in one take. So I'm super chuffed. It's now sitting all over Instagram Reels, Instagram Stories, oh, Instagram. So oh my god, there's so many. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, we've now and also we are now up to. Are you ready? 12 followers on oh, TikTok. This is good. Actually, my daughter will be impressed by that. She I, will be impressed. That, so. that, that is almost and, influencer status, I think. And how many views did we get of our latest uh, TikTok video? 300. Well, I said, no, because he's told me this before. I actually think that's really good because I think those 12 people are therefore watching it over and over and over again. So it must that's be it. engaging content. People should flood to our TikTok feed. Yes. Do you do the dance? You don't do the dances, no? I, I haven't done the dances yet, but um, maybe we can rope our guest into a, a, a cheeky TikTok dance <laughs> later on. Uh, she's, now, she's now thinking, what the, what the hell have I signed up for? Nice. Uh, no, no, we haven't done the dances. Um, but I am actually, it's, it's, it's quite interesting as a, as a channel because there doesn't seem to be many of the big so uh, big charity brands on there. You know, there's a few of them that are doing very well. Uh, Shelter come to mind, uh, Refuge. Uh, Red Cross, yeah, yeah, they them them three certainly seem to kind of be be embracing the channel. But you know, it's 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 a new channel for for all of us, isn't it? Only been around for a few years, um, kind of obviously boomed over the last last two years. So yeah, be interesting to see how it develops. But we're on there. We have a presence, which is is all we can. And it's like a little present every time you post something as well, Kenneth. I do enjoy them. So. <laughs> well, uh, we try to have a bit of fun with it, don't we? Try to have a little bit of fun. But anyway, look, let's crack on with our episode. We've got a, another brilliant guest that we're really looking forward to talking to and, and a subject that we haven't necessarily covered in great depth on the podcast before. So it should be really interesting. James, shall I crack on with the intro? Please do. Okay. So our guest this week is knowledgeable and passionate human rights expert who is keen to bring the conversation around human rights to the fore wherever possible, making it understandable and accessible to all. She currently leads Power, 
the UK's largest advocacy charity, which upholds and protects the human rights of marginalised, vulnerable and excluded groups as its chief executive. Prior to this, she held senior positions at a number of other charitable organisations, such as Marie Curie, Stonewall, Aid UK, Alzheimer's Society and the Children's Society. Our guest grew up in New York and has been an active human rights advocate from a young age, spending her evenings and weekends campaigning for change for marginalised individuals such as the HIV AIDS community, LGBTQ plus community and those living with mental health issues. She also lives herself with depression, dyslexia and following on from being caught up in the September 11 terrorist attack in New York, hearing loss in one ear and PTSD. She finds her position at power very apt considering how she wishes she had reached out to a charity like Power for support in the years after this traumatic experience. And since 2001, she's lived in Britain and is proud to call London her home. She's a really keen cook, an avid traveller, and hopefully after today, she'll be a TikTok presence as well. But we'll see about that. We're really pleased to welcome Helen Mullinos to the Do More Good podcast. How are you, Helen? Very, very good. Really, really great to be here, Kenneth and James. Thank you for having me. No worries. Thank you so much. And you know, before we were talking, you, I, I did want to check with you about pronouncing your surname. And whenever anyone says that to me, and I then have to read it afterwards, <laughs> it always just kind of puts the pressure on. And I was like sweating then saying it, but hopefully I didn't, I got it right, did I? No, you did really, really well, actually. Really, really, really well. Yeah, I think I, I think when you have a surname that you're used to people misspelling or mispronouncing, you know, you live with that like a badge, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course we do. Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much for, for, for joining us, for giving us your evening. And don't worry, we won't get you to do a TikTok dance. We'll, we'll save that for James after it's recorded. But as we just heard there, a really kind of interesting and diverse background in terms of getting you to where you are today. So we'd like to just kind of rewind a little bit. And we saw from kind of doing some of the research that you obviously, you started your career in, in the private sector um, before moving into the, the non-for-profit sector later on in your career. Can you just talk a little bit about the start for you, kind of, I guess, what your early career was like and, and maybe touch on what we what we talked about in terms of your early life and how activism was always kind yeah. of part of that? Yeah. So I've been working for 30 years, nearly 30 years, and I think I've had several careers during that time. So uh, when I was 16 years old, um, this really traumatic event happened to me where my best friend, who is 17 years old, um, essentially died of AIDS. Um, he died. He wasn't out to his family. Um, he died because he couldn't afford um, the AZT treatment, which at that time in the States was costing about £10,000 $10, or the you know equivalent of about 7000 or £8,000. Um, it made me really angry, confused. Um, I felt that I was living in a society in sort of the late 80s, early 90s that didn't really understand people with HIV or AIDS. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of stigma. And I think what made me sort of um, really take action was this death. And I found myself sort of immersed with a group of really angry New Yorkers who wanted to do something. So as a 16, 17 year old, I became a youth activist. And this is obviously in the days before the internet. So back in the day, you took to the streets, you know, you staged really dramatic protests. So, um, and I'm very, very proud of that time. And I think that in it was the early days of me being able to demonstrate my voice. So, 
you know, for those of us of a different generation, you know, there was no blogging, there was no petitions, there was no consultations, there was no influencing, you know, parliament or government, you know, there was taking to the streets, um, or you lobbied in the US, you know, and that's what you sort of did. So um, I think that in those early years, I worked through a lot of anger as a young woman. Um, I worked, I got to know a lot of people impacted by HIV and AIDS, um, not just in the LGBTQI community, but also in other communities in New York, you know, really a lot of people living in poverty. And what ended up happening is as I sort of started to come out of that scene, I realized that in order for my voice to get heard, they didn't want to listen to the young punk rock chick who was basically uh, the activist on the street. And so I started to learn how to request meetings with, you know, in the States, we have senators, um, we have local representatives as well in the house. So I learned how to dress up in a suit, be very presentable and be able to be very evidence-led and case-led and actually um, have my voice heard as a 20 or 21 year old. Um, and that was a big moment where I realized that I would actually attract more attention being softly spoken, being persuasive and being calm, which having lived in Britain for 20 years are very British kind of values. And so for a New Yorker to take it down a couple of notches is actually a really big uh, learning step. Um, when I was 20 years old, I landed my first job, uh, which was quite a weird job. So my generation, everybody wanted to work in the charity sector. Um, I spent a lot of time partying in college. I went to uni quite young at 17. I finished at 20. Didn't really have those top grades. You know, I didn't go to sort of a, a top university. I came from a working class family. Um, I was the first in my family to go to uni. It was a big deal. Um, so I couldn't get into the charities. Um, so I ended up working in a bank, right? Working in the corporate sector, which much to the shame of all my arty friends who all landed these amazing <laughs> jobs, right? At the New York Times and other places, they were just ashamed of me, you know? And what was interesting is my first job was as a quantitative research analyst. So my first job, you know, remember in the days before Microsoft or massive computer programs. So I learned to analyze macroeconomic patterns and look at data all day. I learned to code in Unix and C plus and Perl as a 20, 21 year old, quite a weird job. And then I used to analyze data and ghostwrite for much older analysts. Um, what was happening in the Japanese, you know, currency market or what was happening in the Australian mining market. So what I learned through that experience of not just being a youth activist, but also probably in my first job was how to take really complex information and explain it in very plain English, a skill that I use in my job today. So what happened from there is I spent 20 years in the private sector, most of it doing mergers and acquisitions, traveling all over the world. Um, I got to spend time in some amazing places and work in amazing places around the world. And I continued being an activist secretly. So what that meant is I was in a blue pinstripe suit during the day. No one really knew much about my outside life. And then sort of an activist in the evenings and weekends, just hoping that I didn't get arrested. So that was a really interesting sort of double life for 20 years. And I think if some of the people in the private sector knew what I was up to in evenings and weekends, I probably would have been sacked. About nine, 10 years ago, I thought there was a better way in my life and my career. I started to think about I didn't want to be living a double life. 
I thought I need to like look in the mirror every day and respect myself and respect the work that I'm doing and tie it to the passion. You know, I had this hole to fill in my life and I felt my career, although I was good at it, it actually wasn't fulfilling me in any way. So I thought, right, I'm going to enter the charity sector. And in this bold, big way, I set off and I thought, yeah, I'm an asset. Well, no one agreed. So <laughs> I, I got to the charity sector and everyone was like, oh, who are you, private sector person? Like, don't, you know, don't in any way intoxicate our beautiful charity culture. Mm -hmm. So I think in those days, people were very um, suspicious of anybody coming from the private sector. People often thought you were having like a midlife crisis or something, you know, um, or they didn't want you to bring your corporate ways, you know, to the charity sector. So um, after like really trying and trying and trying to get into the charity sector, I started to realize that what I could do was take my skills of mergers and acquisitions, consortium, partnerships, um, income generation, um, and actually translate that into a business. So after failing for nearly a year and a half to land a role, uh, I started my own business and I started advising boards of charities who actually did value my skill set. Um, and that became sort of, it started with, you know, looking at deals and partnerships and helping to build a bridge between the charity sector and the private sector. Uh, and then it very quickly moved into crisis management um, and also advising boards um, on tricky situations. So, yeah, that's kind of the history of my career, really. Did you then spend your evening secretly banking? <laughs> I'm guessing not. Do you know what? I'll tell you that, you know, I am pretty good with money because of because of the banking time. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was secretly banking and I still do. Yeah, yeah I still keep spreadsheets and, you know, oh. I still am one of those sort of, you know, really, I'm really astute with finances and it annoys everyone in my life. Yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> Just interested, Helen, as you talked about when you were sort of 2021 and you, and you, you realised that actually if you were going to, you could have more impact by looking like the people that you were trying to influence. You dressed up in a suit, you had mm. arranged meetings. That feels like a quite unique perspective to take at that time when you're at the weekends, as you say, or on the streets in the evenings, you know, you're an activist who likes being out there. How did that go down and how did you influence the people around you that that was the right approach to take at that time? I don't think that I did convince the people around me that really? it was the right approach to take. Um, I think that movements have many different layers to them. You know, you can even take like the climate change movement in this country at this time. There are so many different types of activists, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it can be very polarizing, right? So any movement that you look at, even the HIV and AIDS movement at that time, you know, looking at human rights or the LGBTQI movement in New York had so many different layers and so many beliefs about what was effective and what wasn't effective. And some people felt some methods were selling out, some people you know, at that time would have been looking at um, very extreme methods to get attention. Mm. Um, very, you know, it's very funny because I think sometimes activists and activist methods come full circle. So I think about New York in the 80s and 90s and you had groups like ACT UP, which obviously established internationally and they were like the Extinction Rebellion of that time. So they would have been throwing red paint, you know, over corporate buildings to signify, you know, the blood of people's lives lost. They would have been staging very theatrical, 
costumes, dressed as coffins, doing dines in the middle of Times Square. And, you know, that was in the 80s and 90s. So I see a lot of the Extinction Rebellion type activists of these days mimicking those very early theatrics of some of those New York protesters. And, you know, that was decades ago. Mm. Um, but remember, those New York protesters were mimicking some of the protesters from the 60s, right? And yeah. the 50s. So I see all of it all being very derivative, you know, mm. but I think that this idea of amateur, you know, and large staged protests that get attention are not in any way new ideas. Mm. You know, mm. I think they're very old ideas. But in the same, you know, you know, you look at the climate change movement, I'm going to use that as an example, you know, you have people who would say no, no, to engage with parliament, and you know, the real power is sitting with parliament and MPs, whereas other activists will say no, the real power is sitting with the general public and their hearts and minds, others will say it's about education. So it's a it's a really, really tricky space. Um, you can get 10 people from the same movement together, and they'll bicker in a room, you know, endlessly about what the right thing to do and the right, the, what the right tactics are. Mm, so that was just you at that point realizing what the right tactic was for you. For me, for yeah, me, yeah. yes, okay, absolutely. Sense. And 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 I think the causes that were important to me, but mm. I wouldn't necessarily say that I convinced many people of that. Mm. Presumably, also you thought about how do I? I don't necessarily care what other people think of me. I'm here to get results, and the way that I see getting results is by adapting myself to to get into the room with the right people. That's yeah. Great. That's quite a mature way of looking at it, you know, that's quite... Well, I think you have to grow and learn, you know, as a campaigner. You have to actually try different things. You have to be open to change. But yeah, I guess it was pretty mature, you know, probably more mature than I am Like Far more results driven than you're willing to sacrifice other things, like other people's opinions or, you know, comments they might make in order to get results. And you were happy to do that. Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah. Helen, I mean, there's, there's so much in there in, 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 that we could explore. I think we wanted to kind of, you know, obviously come on to your role today. But, um, you know, the, the podcast, we like to think that it, it gives people some advice and um, maybe those who are outside of the sector wanting to come in. You, you spoke about that, that, you know, your struggle getting into the to the sector. I myself came from the private sector in and also struggled to, to kind of get that break. I'm just wondering your opinion on on whether that 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 that's changed now and also what you learned from that process of spending a year trying to get into the sector and those pushbacks that you had, what you've learned from it looking back retrospectively. Yeah, the advice I'd give someone trying to break into the sector is twofold. One is um, volunteering can be a very good way in. Um, that's how my husband years ago made his transition from the private sector. You know, he volunteered for an organization for a long time. At some point, he became part of the furniture and they just said, you might as well come and work here. <laughs> so, um, and that actually, I mean, he was doing it to give himself headspace to figure out what was next. And it just turned mm -hmm. out that, you know, he fell in love with the charity and the charity fell in love with him. So that's the first thing I would say is actually give time. Um, and giving time is a two-way street. So you might also be checking out the culture of a charity. Sometimes we think of charities with rose-tinted glasses. We look from the outside in, we look at their branding. Um, I mean, we've all worked in the charity sector and we know that the reality of what it really looks like inside, you know, could be very different than what you perceive it to be. Much more um, glamorous. Much, much more, more glamorous. Oh, absolutely, much yeah. more glamorous, exactly. Um, I, the other piece of advice I would give is, um, 
actually rather than trying to sell yourself as you are as the private sector because no one cares about who you were in the private sector um transfer identify your transferable skills um that the charity sector needs and and it's almost like finding the kenneth or james shaped hole right so you know what does this charity need you know and what can i actually provide that's actually of value um and lastly be prepared to take a massive salary cut and you know and don't complain about it because a charity doesn't owe you a living so i see so many people from the private sector come into a charity and you know a charity will advertise a, a role at a very small you know at affordable you know salary and a private sector person may say well i'm coming and applying but i'm expecting to be paid twice as much as a charity person like i think you need to be humble coming into the application process and and be willing to fit in with what the charity is willing to offer you so i think that that's the other piece of advice i would give yeah, and you talk about being younger and how all of your friends are desperate to get into into the charities. Uh, that, I love that. That would be a fantastic group of mates. To, and, you know, there's the one guy at the end. Of, oh, damn, I didn't get into the charity. I'm going to have to go and be an investor. That was banker. me. That was yeah. me. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, well, I'll struggle by. That sounds like a great culture amongst your friends. And I imagine that came from that. I mean, you, you touched on it there, but that that real traumatic experience when you were younger, that is bound to fire you. Like, formative years as a teenager. Mm. Um I imagine you carry that that with you today and that that passion yeah. and, and things was formed in those in those years. It was. And I think standing up for people um, actually was formed in those years. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and started with that experience and, and sort of has carried on. And so I have this I'm a bit like a dog to a bone about social justice. Um, and that runs through everything I do in my life. So amazing. Um, we will come on to it. I just want to the last question before we kind of come on to your role now and 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 tell us more about power and the amazing work that you and the organization do. I just wanted to touch on one other thing you talked about is bringing about the your M&A experience into the charity sector. And I think one thing that's come out of the last year is the I guess the magnifying glass that is on the sector that is always there around, you know, charities similar charities doing the same thing you know having two fundraising teams and two organizations that are essentially raising money for the same thing why don't we see more collaboration why don't we see more mergers between organizations i just wondered with your experience considering that what your view on 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 the wider sector is and whether you've seen more collaboration over those last 20 months in my current role as the chief executive of power I think our strategy has been to partner with smaller grassroots charities, um, which is quite unusual. You know, we're not the largest charity, but we're a sizable charity. We're about, you know, 15, 16 million turnover and, you know, mm. projected really for this year. And the way I look at it is that as a national charity, we could lose, we, we risk losing touch with local communities or what's happening in local communities if we don't partner with smaller grassroots charities or grassroots groups. So for us, we probably get more from that partnership than maybe that grassroots group. In exchange, we share ideas, we upskill each other. So actually we look for partners that are really good at something that we're not good at. Mm. Uh, and I think we also treat partners as equals and um, we really, really want to respect the people that we work with. Not everybody does who's sort of larger. So that's something that we really, really embrace. Um, and, you know, we often sort of go into things and think about the beneficiary, the common beneficiary and say, how can we both serve this beneficiary so they have this amazing experience? 
what I would say and what I've seen is I think the biggest barrier to mergers um, in a lot of ways is often executive teams or boards, mm. because I think this idea that you're going to enter into a transaction and then you're going to de duplicate the leadership team. Like, where do you start with that? Because if you're looking at a merger of equals, who's going to give? How are you going to make that selection process if the people who are making the selection are all in that room? You know, mm. so that's quite difficult. Um, who are the winners and losers in that? You know, I think the other thing I would say, and I think what's quite unusual about the charity sector is you don't have the resources that the private sector does. So the private sector you know, is always working on shareholder value. So the shareholders are driving those mergers because it's about like the customer, right? Where we don't have that idea, where we don't think about profit, we think about surplus. Mm. So when you start to think about it and you say, well, what is the common good? The common good is about the beneficiary and the value to the beneficiary. It then becomes, I think, often um, a battle of egos about mm. who's better positioned, you know, which board trustee, you know, which leader, which CEO, which CFO, you know, it's, it's a bit messy. So I think you often don't see as many mergers as you might. What you do see a lot of is what I would call, and, and more typically, is what you call mercy acquisitions. So this is someone's failing. Mm. There's a call that's made to a larger charity that said, if you don't help us, we're going to shut our doors and we're a beloved charity in this community. You know, a larger charity thinks, oh, this is a great you know, opportunity for us to enter into this area. Um, so actually, those transactions are really heartbreaking because I feel that the power dynamics and those are not great. So for the acquired charity who's in crisis, I don't necessarily think they have a voice in that transaction. I think what I do see more and more of is consortium, mm. where actually charities say, you know what, we don't want to merge with you. We don't want to actually acquire you. But what we would like to do is do a three-year service. We'll apply for a grant. We'll get some funding together. We'll divorce each other after three years. So there's very much a beginning, middle, and end. And that's what I'm seeing more and more of is consortiums. Um, we have a large consortium, you know, right now with 12 other charities in a part of the country. Um, it works pretty well. You know, we all have roles. But we all know it's going to come to an end. We know when that end date looks like, you know, we know exactly what our roles are. And it feels like we're not in each other's hair. And what also works about it is we all have our own identities. So I think collaboration doesn't have to be a merger or an acquisition or a formal partnership or a consortium. What I find more and more is charities are reaching out and sharing resources or reusing resources sometimes collaboration doesn't have to be about the most amazing beneficiary project. It might just be one charity calling another charity and saying, we're getting rid of some furniture. Do you want it for free? We'll drive mm -hmm. it over. Or actually, you know, I have a person on my staff who would really value from a secondment in your charity. Could we do a swap? Could we barter? And I'll second my person to your organization and my organization will both be stronger for it. So I think that there's different types of collaboration. So I think when we talk about mergers, acquisitions, you know, um, Kenneth and James, I think we need to look much wider than that and i think we need to be more creative than that yeah it really interesting like you're, perspective you're, sounds like you're focusing on the results again yeah <laughs> 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 front and center and that's the most important thing also you drop in battle of egos you've obviously listened to an episode before um touching <laughs> on uh, you talk about a national charity raising about 16 million pounds a year tell us about power and how you became involved sure so um i had my final interview and was offered the job the day before the first pandemic. 
Now, what you need to understand is this is my first chief executive job. So I remember both feeling pretty euphoric, but also I had no idea what I was getting into. And I remember, I, you know, when I started this sort of recruitment process, I thought, yeah, I know what this is in January, you know, of, of that year. And then by the time I was offered it, I thought, oh, my goodness, the, the world is now in pandemic two months later and I've just been offered a job. Um, I think what was really daunting to me was starting in May of 2020 and thinking I'm starting a job in, you know, a once in a hundred year event, you know, I'm running a charity where, you know, the people who work for me are all over the country in their houses. So mm -hmm. I can't see them. I can't meet them. Their experience of me is going to be over Zoom and somehow I have to establish trust and credibility over Zoom, you know, which was just so bizarre. Yeah. I think what I learned over the last 18, 19 months is that I had to be myself. I couldn't be the model or the caricature of another CEO. I think that throughout all this time, not perfect, you know, I think I've been I've learned a lot about myself in the last 18, 19 months. But what I would say is I've been honest, I've been open, I've been transparent with my staff um, and also recognized a lot of the um, vicarious trauma that they've been through supporting people in crisis. So if you think about the work we do, we support 400,000 people last year. If anything, I've been sort of encouraging my colleagues to be very kind to each other and be very thoughtful throughout the last 18, 19 months now out sort of the other side are we out the other side not sure depends who you ask uh i think what i learned was actually being yourself and and not again believing that you have to be somebody else is the most important thing about taking up a chief exec role mm. there's no rule book there's no mm. like training right you just it's almost like we've heard a lot about authenticity, haven't we? But it, it, it kind of has become more true, I think, over the last 20 months is that you can't hide behind anything anymore. You have to. The only way we're going to get through this is to be authentic, to be yourself, yes. you know, which has meant some people finding their failures and, and, and having to acknowledge blind spots and having to adjust. But it feels like that was the, the, the best way that you could cope with getting getting through yeah. was to be your authentic self. Yeah, definitely. And I think that there was, you know, a lot of panic around me. So a lot of people going, oh, my God, catastrophe, you know, what's going to happen, you know, and, you know, just helping people, you know, really, I felt that my strategy was to tie myself to the mast through the storm and ride it out and, and make sure the people that were on the ship were safe. And that was kind of my priority. And it was OK, you know, so we're I think we're OK, you know, 19 months in. It's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week, so I'm going to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod. Or if you're a professional business person, you can find us on LinkedIn too. There's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team, and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. We're coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. So, Helen, just just touching on some of your some of the services that you provide. I mean, obviously, you're you're, you're empowering people. You're you're giving people a voice. You're 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 trying to make a difference for those that maybe can't find their voice or maybe don't have the voice and aren't able to make that impact. What what do some of the services look like for for people maybe that aren't familiar with the the human rights based organisation? Sure. So, advocacy, information, and advice is how we help people to uphold their human rights. Knowledge is power, 
choice is power. And what we do in um, quite simply is we help people to uphold their rights in public institutions across the UK. So by a public institution, uh, it could be a local authority, a care home, a mental health facility, a hospital, a prison, uh, housing, accommodation, um, immigration. It could be around, you know, food parcels, death and dying, rights in the coroner service, right, you know, you name it, um, we support people. Our youngest beneficiary is seven years old. Our oldest beneficiary is 103. Uh, we have no typical beneficiary, which is very unusual. 6% of our beneficiaries are children or young people. 20% are over age 75. 43% live with a mental health condition. 33% with impairment or disability. About 12% with learning disability or autism. Um, and about 12% identify as black or Asian. What we do, quite simply, you know, is about giving people information, choices, and almost helping to champion their cause in public institutions. In some areas we work in, there are very tight restrictions about who can have an advocate. In other areas, we are able to provide advocacy to all, which is a real shame because of the sort of postcode lottery and the way that some of the different sort of counties work. Um, what I would say is we are an organization that's committed to, again, equality um, and also social justice for everyone who needs us when they need us. Um, the laws that we work with are the Human Rights Act, the Mental Health Act, Mental Capacity Act, the CARE Act, um, the Equality Act 2010. So really, um, all of our advice, our code of practice, everything we do in our services are designed all around that. Wow. Maybe when you talk about human rights conversationally in the pub after a couple of drinks, you don't necessarily think about those things being applicable, let's say, in, in Britain, but they, they firmly are. And when you explain it, actually, that makes that makes perfect sense when you, you advocate for people there. Do you think that perhaps coming from a different country, coming over from the States, do you see it more clearly than having grown up in it and just accepting it as being the norm? Do you think you get a different perspective on it? Are you able to see it more clearly, perhaps? Gosh, that's a really good question. Oh, um, I think. Oh God, Helen, don't happen. do this, yes. please. Yes. yes. Well, oh, that happen once. <laughs> That'll be my round for the drinks next time. <laughs> I think it's hard for me to say because I've lived here for twenty years, mm. and also the lens I was looking at human rights as a 16, 17, 20 year old is different than now someone who's nearly fifty. So. I'm not sure if I can say that my comparison would be fair because I haven't lived in the States for 20 years. So, you know, back then I would have found the US a very unfair place, you know, for human rights. I think doing the work we do here, I have such a different lens about human rights, you know? So when people ask me, is the UK a fair and free place to live? And are human rights upheld here? Uh, my answer is no. <laughs> And it's because of the purview and proximity I have to hundreds of thousands of cases a year, and I can see what happens. Um, that is not a criticism. That's not to say that we're not freer or more privileged than other places in the world. It's not a competition. Um, but what I would say is when I look at our work um, and I think about British you know, human rights, I think sometimes people kind of laugh at that and they say, well, what do you mean human rights in this country? Do you mean undesirable people or terrorists or really bad people? Because that's kind of the rhetoric that we read in the papers. Human Rights Act is for undesirable people. Um, power deals with hundreds of thousands of cases 
every single year that deal with people like you and me and your mom and your nan and your brother and your sister, ordinary people. So for example, you know, we might be supporting somebody in the maternity suite, you know, and maybe who's having their child taken away because somebody thinks that they're not able to raise their child. Or we might be dealing with someone um, with the coroner service or an inquest, right? Because of the nature of someone's death, where may, you know, there's suspected institutional abuse, right, in, in a particular setting. Um, we may be supporting somebody with access and communication who may be living with a disability, who's not able to access information about their choices. Um, we might be, you know, dealing with um, safeguarding in care homes human rights can be so many different things it could be about discrimination it could be about you know so many different things so i sometimes think when i hear someone say oh that's ridiculous you know there are no human rights breaches in this country um i almost want to invite them to talk about power's work and and to almost see the world through my eyes you, you touched on it a little bit then in this country i guess we're not necessarily aware of human rights you know, you as an organisation, I'm sure you 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 have strategies for for raising awareness, for educating people about what their human rights are, for accessing your services. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you as an organisation do that? Sure. Um, the first thing that we do is we tell stories. Stories are very powerful. If we see ourselves in that story, or we see someone we love in that story, we might get help. We might get information. We might get advice. Um, we also put out a lot of um, self-advocacy resources that people can download. So if you go onto our website, you know you can find out all kinds of information. For example, what is an advanced care plan? You know what are your rights within the NHS? You know those kinds of different things. Um, the other thing that we do is I think we put out a lot of evidence. So we submit. Um, a lot of evidence into parliament, parliamentary inquiries, um, because we think evidence is very powerful to, tell, to make a point. So if I want to persuade you, if I have 617 instances of something, you mm. might believe me mm. rather than um, and we also do some more sort of light touch stuff. So we spend a lot of time, um, you know, doing like digital films. We do a lot of animation to help to, uh, you know, explain very complex uh, concepts. And lastly, we do a lot of peer advocacy. And this is getting people together with common lived experiences to talk to each other. So this isn't just about us supporting them, but them supporting each other and saying, have you tried this? Have you tried this? This has been my experience. Mm -hmm. um, and lastly, we do a lot of awareness raising. So for example, this podcast, someone's going to listen to it and say, oh, I Great wonder people. if I could benefit. Yeah, yeah. three people. Exactly. <laughs> um, someone might say, you know, actually, I could benefit from advocacy or that sounds like something I need to look into. Um, and, and lastly, we do a lot of public speaking. So a lot of community engagement events in different places, anyone that will have us. So, uh, you know, wh whatever we can do to really sing it from the rooftops to say, mm -hmm. here's information. We're very generous and we want to make sure um, that people have that information in whatever way that they can access it. Mm -hmm. okay. And what about, so do you do any kind of influencing any policy work? Uh, understand there's a review dropping any day soon. Yeah, um, we, so I spend about 50% of my job campaigning and influencing um, that can take on many different forms. I've mentioned sort of parliamentary consultations um, that can take, um, there's a lot of roundtable and partnering between either other advocacy providers or other human rights organizations. We might get together and look at ministerial letters or open letters. Sometimes we collaborate together on research papers or green papers. 
Um, sometimes we generally are just annoying and sort of rock up and show up to places that we may not be welcome to, but we make sure to pull out a chair at the table. I think campaigning and influencing can take on so many different forms. You know, it could be PR and media. It could be about traditional campaigning. It could be about hearts and mind of the public. You know, we've all become digital activists, armchair activists from our own homes. So anyway, we can engage people, you know, um, take to social media, take to different places. Uh, yeah, so we, we try to do as much as possible, really, of um, campaigning, influencing and amplification. And you can hear that activist that can still, as you, as you talked about it there, Helen, I can still see your, that 20 year old self kind of that real kind of power and energy. It still kind of runs through you now. I'm just interested, you know, when you said at the start about coming into this role as the CEO, your first role as a CEO of a charity, um, starting during the pandemic, you know, we're now 20, 21 months, 21 months through it. How it, has it been everything that you thought it would be? Mm, everything and more. Mm. And not easy, not easy. Um, this has been just the great love of my career, like honestly. And, you know, what I love about this job, and I, I probably will get very emotional about this because I feel so passionate about it, is I feel there's not enough hours in the day to do this job. You know, I could just keep working, you know, but I have to have that balance. The people I work with are so incredibly inspiring. Wow. And I am really egged on. I get out of bed every day for our beneficiaries, but mostly for my colleagues. When I see how just incredibly brave they are, you have to remember, we don't just support people with cases. We act as whistleblowers to the CQC, to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. You know, we are taking on big institutions. And the people that work with me do that alongside me. So to see that impact and power and standing up to power and influence in this country is so incredible. So, yeah, I mean, it's been everything and more. Um, but boy, have I grown gray, you know, in the last 21 months. I <laughs> I need a holiday desperately. You that know, was going to be, when you talk about it, yeah. And, and also you talk about the, the kind of cases that you have and, and where you are. How do you switch off? How do you find the time to to cook, to travel, to record the TikTok videos. Yeah, no TikTok videos. You've slipped that in there. Definitely, you're, you're trying to you're trying to lure me into some kind of dancing. There needs to be more gin and tonic before I can sort of bring, you can bring and, and you know. Um, so I think uh, you know I learned a long time ago the difference between introverts and extroverts. I used to think extroverts were just really loud gobby people and I'm a bit loud because I don't have hearing in one ear so you know everybody thinks I'm loud and energetic introverts are actually people who might be loud might not be loud but they're people who recharge um, by being by themselves and extroverts recharge by being around other people um, I'm very much an introvert and what I find about this job is as a chief exec you're often like a performing monkey so you're constantly around people and it's just very very exhausting so my downtime um, first of all I read a a lot of crime and horror books. Um, absolutely can't get enough of them. Um, there's always a paperback um, in my um, in my bag. Can't. I'm a big, big reader. Love reading. Um, I also adore film, particularly. And if anyone's listening, the genre of 70s British horror. The cheaper the film, the better. <laughs> you know, the more homemade, the better. Yeah. So Hammer films are probably my absolute favorite. It's I like a bit of cheap, Hitchcock as well. Yeah. Cheaply made horror is your thing. You should listen cheaply to it. Cheaply made. Of, 
Like some of our first few seasons. Oh, excellent. Fabulous. That was certainly a horror show. Yeah, I love um, it. But yeah, there's all that. And then, you know, I don't know. I, I think I just need to do things by myself. So I swim, I do yoga, you know, I just do things by myself. And I even go out to dinner by myself, which people find weird. But my favorite thing to do, like, I like to have a date with myself. I know this sounds really weird, but I sit in my favorite sushi place. I get my crime book. I sit in the corner where no one can notice me. And I just sit and eat sushi for hours yeah, and nice. I love it. And it's joy, joyful for me. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I, people think that's weird, you know, but yeah, I just love on it. That, just on that point, I was talking to someone the other day and um, they, they went on holiday by themselves. And, and, and <laughs> I, I was like, that. oh my gosh, that sounds so good. Like, you know, really and I, yeah. like hopefully my wife and my children aren't listening to this, yeah. but, yeah. you know, just going away for a couple of days. I think I'd actually, because I'm a, an extra, I need people around and I've struggled actually in this because I'm still from home. And so, you know, my wife is in the other room and children are at school and come back and, and that's great. But, you know, I miss having people around. Um, but yeah, I was really like, oh, holiday on your own? Two yeah. days? That sounds yeah. nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So you weren't one of these people who like, you know, like, I don't know, wrote a novel or had a sourdough starter or kind of learned guitar because I don't know who these people are. Yeah. I don't know. Too busy I working. Bored. Yeah. Exactly. I was <laughs> bored and working and it was like Groundhog Day every day. I was, you know, getting up later and later and thinking, how late can I lie in before I actually have to get on the Zoom call? You know, that was yeah. sort of how the pandemic was for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's it's all about, you know, kind of just stepping away and um, stepping away from any news channels, any phones, any anything like that. Um, but yeah, I think that's the most important thing. That's amazing. That's a look. I think that's a, a lovely way to kind of wrap it all up, Helen. And 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 thank you so much for your energy and your your oh, passion you. really comes through. And obviously, you. you've had some experience of talking to people over Zoom over the last twenty months, so you've <laughs> nailed how to do it. But Helen, we're not going to let you go straight away. We have three um, quick fire questions that we drop in at the end of the podcast. So yeah, I'm interested in your answers. James, do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the first one. Uh, if you could transport back in time and meet your 20 year old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? Grow your hair and take that nose earring out if you want people to take you seriously. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Okay, next one. Um, can you tell us about one life hack or a productivity tool or a habit or a skill or something that you've taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? Oh, that's an interesting one. How to do a good stir fry. Oh, go on, reveal. Any we've had tips? a few. Yeah, we've had a few um, okay. food related ones on this. The key, first of all, is the walk is very important. And I don't mean like, you know, some kind, I mean like an authentic walk, you know, go to sort of an Asian supermarket, go to Chinatown. It's not going to be this nonstick walk that you're going to want. You know, it's not going to be the walk that you want, but get a good walk and, 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 and love the walk and treat the walk with respect. Keep it oiled, keep it, you know, sort of, um, don't wash it in the traditional way, you know, learn how to wash your walk and how to oil your walk and, and take care of your walk. So that's the first thing is take your Western ideas about a walk off not the non-stick one it's you know a different walk um the other thing is it's all about gas heat and a very 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 hot 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 pan so get your pan very very hot have everything pre-chopped and it's also about and and this is my my big hack was because we do so many stir fries in the house 
you know, I know there's a lot of people who want like the garlic clove and the authentic chili and so on. If you're doing stir fries like I do a couple times a week, have buy the pre-made chili paste, <laughs> buy the pre-chopped onions, buy the ginger paste. Don't be a skin flint about it. Just, you know, have them out there because, you know, a good sauce is about great fresh ingredients and actually having those basics, chili, the ginger and the garlic. OK. And the other thing I would sort of probably say is in your mind, whatever cooking time you think, cook, do half of that, actually, because I think that um, there is a risk of us overcooking our vegetables and a soggy vegetable is a disgusting stir fry. You want a bit of crunch. I like that. That's good. Have you ever seasoned a wok, James? Oh, many times, many times. So I've probably, I've probably done it for too long and uh, chopped up my own. So yeah, very badly, very oh. badly by the advice there. I loved how when you gave that advice, you also lent right in. That was clearly <laughs> that was a specialist subject there. You were really gonna, and you really did give us the full. And also, I imagined um, you in the wok shop, a bit like Indiana Jones at the end. You know, all of the different holy grails, and you've got to pick the one that doesn't isn't necessarily the shiny nonstick <laughs> one. Do, do you know you say that I? Um, so we're very we're very green minded in, in my house. And sometimes to the point where like, you know, we have clothes that are like 12 years old that have holes in them and stuff. Like it's really bad. And often like we have to say to each other, no, that needs to go. Like, you know, it's really like, you know, so, um, one of the funny things is when I moved from New York 20 years ago, I brought my walk <laughs> from Chinatown, which I'd bought in Hong Kong. And that, when I when I was working in Hong Kong for six months, um, many years ago, like in the 90s, I bought this walk, moved from Hong Kong, you know, back to New York, brought this walk, right, and then brought it to London. So this was like one of like I had a suitcase and then a second suitcase, which was filled with this giant walk, right? <laughs> and so like, you know, which is quite weird, right? And then and not just not just the walk, but I have a whole chopsticks selection from my time of working in, in Asia. And like good chops, there's good chopsticks and there's cheap oh, chopsticks. There's, you know, chopsticks for dinner parties that only come out once. I mean, it's really quite serious business. And we recently had to get rid of the walk that was nearly 30 years old. And I, I felt like it was a really quite upsetting event. My <laughs> husband was like, come on, it's really a mess. Like you need to get a new walk. So, yeah. I think we need to start a do more good um, cooking show. Uh, Chinese version first first off, that's, Chinese yeah, cooking, oriental so. cooking. That would be great. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. Go on then, James. Last question. Final question. As a podcast that is focused around people doing more good, what's your favourite story or inspiring individual you have met on your journey or recently who has done something good for others? I'm going to tell you about Louise. So Louise is a lady in her 50s with mental health support needs and long-term illness. She's one of our beneficiaries. Um, and I want to share this quote to you because I think that it really summarizes how advocacy and people working in human rights can make a difference to somebody's life. So this is an actual quote from Louise. I'm going to read you. I didn't realize how much help I would get from an advocate. I was in a downward spiral without any hope. I couldn't cope and probably wouldn't have survived. I couldn't keep my head above water. I was also trying to deal with things, but getting so confused. My advocate, Kathy, helped me to find my voice. When I say something to Kathy, she knows what I'm saying. And after speaking to me, she empowers me. She's given me the tools, information, and knowledge. I don't feel vulnerable anymore or open to being manipulated or pushed by anyone. I can now stand up for myself, thanks to my advocate. Nice. So nice. people doing more good. I'd love to see more advocacy in the world. 
There we go. Helen, what perfect, perfect ending to, to a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We wish you very much lots of luck and, and yeah, keep on fighting the good fight. You sound like you're doing an amazing job and I'm sure you've got an amazing team who Thank are you. all right behind you. So Thank you. Yeah. My 20-year-old self would be proud, I think. You know, <laughs> <laughs> James, any final thoughts? Uh, I'm going to go and cut my hair, take my nose ring out and buy a new walk. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Yes, thanks. See you soon. Just before we go, can we ask you a favour? If you enjoyed this episode and you made it this far after all and want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd really love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.